Kate Bingham talks to Michael Barclay about some of the challenges of leading the vaccine task force. At 6.31am on the 8th of December 2020, a 90-year-old grandmother in Coventry became the first person in the world to be given the Covid jab as part of a mass vaccination programme. It was a historic moment. Within six months, more than 30 million people in the UK had received at least one dose. Many people say that extraordinary achievement would not have been possible without the work of my guest today, Kate Bingham, a venture capitalist with a first-class degree in biochemistry. In May 2020, she was asked by the Prime Minister to head a new vaccine task force, leading British efforts to find and manufacture a COVID-19 vaccine for the UK and abroad. Her appointment was somewhat controversial, of which more later, but in the words of Professor Dame Sarah Gilbert, the scientist who invented the AstraZeneca vaccine, her calm decisions in the uncertain early days of the pandemic saved countless lives. Kate Bingham was appointed Dame Commander of the British Empire in the Queen's 2021 birthday honours list. Welcome, Kate. I'm very much looking forward to hearing about the inside story of the race to roll out the vaccine, but also to hearing your music, because I know how important music has been throughout your life. You're an oboist. I am a, I would say, a lapsed oboist rather than a a current uh, oboist. And I'm certainly enthusiastic, um, (laughs) if not good. Coming uh, to lead the vaccine task force, Kate Bingham, you had your first encounter with the inner workings of government and you've been very critical about the people you met. You said in a lecture at Oxford a couple of months ago, across government there is a devastating lack of skills and experience in science, industry, commerce and manufacturing. I think that is the case and I just want to be clear, it's not lack of hard work or lack of willingness. So the I think there's lots and lots of very strong, capable people. But specifically in vaccines, actually, you do need to have understanding of the different elements that that are um, required to discover, develop, manufacture vaccines. And it's very, very difficult if you're not talking the same language with those who are ultimately making the decisions. So I am critical. I think less than 10% of civil servants uh, have science or STEM degrees. And I just don't think it's valued in the same way as, you know, a broad generalist humanities education, which I think is especially wrong in this day and age. You've said that um, you encountered quite a bit of, as you put it, group think, uh, and in your words, a massive aversion to risk. Um, but presumably politics is always about risk to a certain extent if you're going to get anything done. Well, I think this is where it comes back to sort of the yes minister type uh, <laughs> approach because it's always safer to, to just delay decisions until you've got perfect information. And in our case, we didn't have that luxury. We needed to make decisions quickly on the back of imperfect information. And that meant we would be taking risks which are different from risks that governments would normally take. And so, again, I think it was a courageous move to recognise that we were providing money up front to both scale up facilities for manufacture as well as provide funding for the 
clinical trials for vaccines before we knew whether or not they were going to work. And our government was willing to do that. So during my watch, £900 million was spent up front on vaccines that we did not yet know whether or not they would work. And every day we took longer than we needed to, more people would die. And it was a very, very concerning time when every day you you look at the numbers of people that were either hospitalised, seriously ill or, or dead, and knowing that if we delayed, those numbers would go up. So we, I absolutely felt the burden of you know, the country on us and to act as quickly as possible. And that is not normally the way government works. With hindsight, the work of the vaccine task force looks like an enormous success. Do you worry at all about how we are managing to disseminate this around the world and to countries that are less fortunate than us? Of course, and that was my final regret, is that we have not been effective at distributing vaccine around the world and getting the vaccines to those who are most at risk and most vulnerable. And the UK, we've pledged um, substantial funds as well as uh, 100 million doses of vaccines, but we have not been efficient as I think we should be in actually ensuring that those both the funds and the vaccines get to where they should be. So I think globally, we have not done a good job in vaccinating the world. Your next music, Kate, takes you back to school days, a tribute to all the dedicated music teachers who taught you at St Paul's School in London, where Gustav Holst had previously been music master. And I think the spirit of Holst was still very much around. Yes, I mean, we had all our music lessons were in the Holstrom. So we were sitting in the very room where he did all his compositions and he would mostly compose on the piano and then, um, I think in many cases, use the Paulinas to actually help uh, write out the orchestration. So it absolutely felt uh, historic and he was omnipresent in the school because we would perform his music. We would just have a very rich musical education at at St Paul's Girls, which, again, was I just loved because it allowed me to try all sorts of new things. Again, I was sort of not very good, but certainly enthusiastic. You've chosen part of the planets. Which movement have you decided we should hear? Well, I've gone for Jupiter because it is a wonderfully uplifting music. It could have been Mars. It could have been a whole bunch of them, actually. And I specifically wanted this recording from the National Youth Orchestra with Edward Gardner because I saw them rehearse, perform, and it's just wonderful.
Edward Gardner conducting the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain in music from The Planets by Gustav Holst. We heard Jupiter, the bringer of jollity, and thinking about that, I wonder whether Holst, when he wrote that tune, suddenly thought, yes, this will go down well. And I wonder whether you, Kate, suddenly had that eureka moment when you realised that a vaccine was going to work against COVID. Can you remember if there was one? The eureka moment will be embedded in my memory forever. The Pfizer data was formally announced on Monday the 9th of November 2020. I think we heard about it, you know, first thing that morning. And to understand that the data was so far better than we had expected uh, was just brilliant. And I remember I'd gone through a very rocky, you know, 10 days or so, up until that point, with Jesse, my husband, just being a rock to support everything because it was very challenging. I was on my own in Wales. And so to come out of that sort of dark period, despite the love and the support of my husband, to then end up with an over 90% effective vaccine and knowing that we had secured the first contract but also a material contract and we had confidence that we were going to uh, be able to get that vaccine delivered to the UK in December was just a moment that I will never, ever forget. How did you react? Oh, I danced around the table and (laughs) uh, screamed and shouted. I mean, it really was a very, very exciting time because, you know, we were wondering whether or not we'd even get a 50% um, efficacy because there was, again, no precedent. A flu, another respiratory virus, was on average a 50%. And this is an optimised process where you really understand how flu works. And we were dealing with a virus that we didn't know how it worked And so I was not at all sure that we would get even 50% efficacy. So greater than 90% was brilliant. After your six months at the vaccine task force were up, you went back to your day job uh, with, I imagine, some relief. But, of course, (laughs) the world has changed so enormously. And I wonder how you see the future. Will COVID remain a threat? Will there be new and more serious variants? Well, I'm not a physician and uh, not an expert here, but I think what's most likely is this will end up like flu and that we will need to give um, annual protection to those who are most vulnerable. And I would hope it would be in a combined you know, flu and COVID shot. Um, I think there is a risk that we could get more variants, uh, which could potentially be more harmful. Because again, until we vaccinate all those people who are at risk, there is continued risk of uh, further viral mutation. And I'm specifically thinking about, you know, people with HIV, those who are immunocompromised, where the virus is able to continue to mutate unchecked. So I think it behoves the world, and certainly the UK, to share vaccines with those people who are most at risk so that we can limit any further development of transmissible infectious virus. But I don't think it's going away. I think it's with us for good now. So now it's a matter of living with it and um, adapting our health systems such that all those people who are vulnerable will be protected. And that means that we've got to move away from two, you know, or three injections with cold chains and health professionals having to manage the process. And we need to move to something that will be much more simple to administer, whether that's patches or sprays or pills. We've got to find ways to actually get vaccines to people safely so that they can then be protected.
Whatever fresh challenges your work brings you, Kate, there's one lesser-known part of your CV I feel I must, to be honest, bring to people's attention just before you leave, and that is that you are the winner of the female mountain bike bog snorkelling world championship. Yes, I was the winner because nobody else took part to challenge me. <laughs> um, but it was a rather bizarre and very fun competition in mid-Wales, set up originally as a fundraiser for the local village, and then attracts people from far and wide to go and do bizarre things in bogs, whether it's riding bicycles or swimming non-traditional strokes. Tell me about bog snorkelling. If I were to take this up, uh, I would have to do it on a mountain bike? Yes, you're, you do it on a specially weighted mountain bike and you ride into the bog with weights on, on your, on your body, around your waist, and then a snorkel and a face mask. And you have to go into the bog about, I don't know, four or five metres round a white post and then back out again. And luckily there are two people in the bog to pick you up just in case you <laughs> end up drowning and need to be pushed out. In case out. the weights work exactly. too well. <laughs> but in fact that doesn't happen because you are buoyant and so trying to push down when you're buoyant is really quite difficult. So it's a very comical um, spectacle. I think this and everything else you've spoken about suggests an amazing energy and enthusiasm, indeed inspiringly so. Well, I just think that life is too short not to have fun and take opportunities whenever they come.
and dreamers and schemers and come all you restless just searching for home movers and shakers and givers and takers the happy the sad the lost and alone come self-sufficient with wearied ambition and come those who feel at the end of the road Accusers, abusers, the hurt and ignored Come through the feast, there is room at the table Come, let us meet in this place With the king of all kindness Who welcomes us in with the wonder of love And the power of grace Come through the feast, there is room at the table Come, let us meet in this place With the king of all kindness Who welcomes us in with the wonder of love has recently retired as Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. During the vacancy, Matthew Roger has been appointed as locum minister. When Matthew is away on holiday, the worship group has to step in and lead the Sunday service. Rachel Wood and her son Frederick took one of the services. Here's Frederick leading a prayerful song with Rachel on the piano and the congregation joining in the Kyrie. Empty, broken, here I stand. Touch me with your healing hand. Take my arrogance and pride. Wash me in your mercy tide. Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie When my faith has all but gone Give me strength to carry on When my dreams have turned to dust In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. When my heart is cold as ice, 
Your love speaks of sacrifice. Love that sets their captives free. Pour compassion down on me. Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Kyrie eleison. Ernie Ray hosts a series of programmes called Beyond Belief. This week he talks to Grant McCaskill about how churches can be more welcoming towards people who have autism. The diagnosis of autism has risen dramatically in recent decades. The National Autistic Society describe autism as a lifelong developmental disability that affects how people communicate and interact with the world. They say that as many as one in a hundred of us may be autistic. By the end of 2021, 88,000 people in England alone were waiting for a diagnosis assessment. There are calls for society to adapt to our greater understanding of autism. But what about religious organisations? Do they understand the needs of a growing number of their congregations? How easy is it for autistic people to believe in God? I'm Grant McCaskill. I teach New Testament at the University of Aberdeen. And I'm one of the founders of the Centre for Autism and Theology at the university. What loss is it to religious communities if autistic people feel excluded? What you're losing is diversity. That means that you're actually losing different ways of thinking about God, different ways of reading scripture. You're losing different experiences that might contribute to a pastoral environment where an autistic person might interact with someone else who might be struggling with something. And also I think you're losing honesty because what you're ending up with are communities that um, don't really reflect the variety of experience that is out there. What is the one thing that religious communities could do to make it more welcoming, make them more accessible to autistic people? I think just recognising that there will be autistic people in your midst and learning to ask what they might need. A big part of that is sensory, but the only way you'll know what they need is if you ask them. Everything is beautiful in its own way. 
shouldn't care about the length of his hair or the color of his skin. Summer night 